so much. Um, thank you once again, uh, JQuad Christian Union, for uh, inviting me to be with you this uh, evening. My name is Danson, as you've heard. I think I have interacted with some of you, some I may have not been. It's very interesting, by the way, that the last time when I was here, we talked about relativism. Any, any of you guys remember? And the text that we were referring to, towards the end, actually, uh, in the beginning and towards the end, was, was a text in the book of Judges. Uh, and, 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 and in that text, uh, God uh, is basically giving us a summary of what was happening in the period of the Judges. And uh, the idea there is that um, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did um, what they saw fit in their eyes. And so very interesting that providentially, maybe a year or more after that, that I come to you to spend time in God's word as we talk about and as we think through this story of uh, Ruth. Um, any of you have read this story before? Um, this is one of the best classical love stories you can ever come across. Forget about all the others that you have read. Forget about... Um, what's it called, Cinderella, and all those things. Forget about the telenovela that you're watching. This is the real deal. And so I want you to um, jump in with me to the book of Ruth, uh, chapter 1. Uh, we'll be spending our time in Ruth, chapter 1 and chapter 2. And so here's how we're going to do it. I'm not going to read through the entire of it. I'll be reading portions as we go, right? Yes, that's that, uh, so that we can save on the time that we We've already lost uh, 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 the time that we have spent, not really lost <laughs> adequately. All right, so um, as a way of introduction, the book of Ruth is, as I said, a very well-loved um, story. A part of this affection is that the narrative has all the elements of good drama. Mm. When, you are, when you want to read a novel, the first thing you want to ask yourself is, is this really dramatic? Is, are there events and they are going to pull me into engaging my brain for the next, what, two hours or five hours as I relish and enjoy the story? It has a very engaging plot, a, a very I interesting characters. There's tension, there's romance, there's conflict, there's people overcoming hardships, and, and so much more in this very four-chapter text, the book of Ruth. I said the moving, account, uh, the moving account ends like a Cinderella story. Uh, many stories that we have had before always end something like, and they lived happily ever after. Now, guess what? For this specific story, that's actually how it ends. Uh, the two main figures love each other, marry, and have children just what you wanted it to be. In fact, some commentators rely on this type of reading as they explain the intent of the book. Uh, seeing the major characters as Boaz and Ruth, uh, the commentators say this is actually a love story between God and his people. Now, in the English Bible, uh, if you have one, you'll notice that the book of Ruth is the eighth book, right? Immediately after the book of Judges. But in the Hebrew Tanakh, uh, in the Hebrew Bible, the interesting thing is, actually, the book of Ruth comes after the book of Proverbs. Guess why? Because the, 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 the ones who were putting together the, the, the Hebrew scholars, in their minds, they understood the book of Ruth as being an exposition of the book of Proverbs, chapter 31. Any of, your view, uh, any of you who are familiar with the Proverbs 31 women? Woman? Any Proverbs 31 women in this house? Could you just raise your hands? Yeah, that's what we're talking about. I am not surprised that there are some here. Now notice that the book of Ruth answers the question of the 
Proverbs 31 woman, when you look at Ruth as a character in the book of Ruth, you will notice that almost all the characteristics that are given to the worthy woman are actually characteristics ex, um, exploited by Ruth. In fact, Boaz says he found a worthy woman. Uh, in, in fact, the book of, the book of J uh, Ruth refers to Boaz himself as a worthy man. Uh, the upright characters of Ruth and Boaz are certainly worthy of emulation, but this is something I want you to note. The theme of the book of Ruth is not, I want and I should be like Ruth. It's not, I want and I should be like Boaz. It's not, I want and I should be like Naomi. This story is bigger than you think. Any Boazes in the house? How come we are? Any Ruths in the house? Mm. I'm so sorry for all of your Ruths here. I don't know what's going to happen to you guys. So the book has a greater purpose than simply being a moral story of human uprightness. The author tells a story that took place in the time of the judges. This is where there was no king in Israel. And the book of Ruth provides an account of the ancestry of David, perhaps the greatest king of ancient Israel. And the story ends up by disclosing the fact that Ruth and Boaz are David's great-grandparents. See, the story, therefore, is not merely a moral story of integrity, but it points to the coming king. Oh, you think the coming king is David? In one way, you'd say yes. But you see, the promised coming king was Jesus Christ, who was to be the son of David. In other words, what we are saying here is, without Ruth, there would be no what? Jesus. And one reason for this incorporation and one reason for this is actually what we see in the genealogy in the book of Matthew chapter 1 verse 3 to 6. Notice that the genealogy given in Ruth chapter 4 verse 18 to 22 is the very, very same genealogy given in the book of Matthew except for Rahab and Ruth in the genealogy. This is just some of the interesting things that I wanted to bring to your attention as we delve deeper into our time together. Ah, as any story or interesting drama movie that you would want to watch with episodes, this one is going to have four episodes. I'll give you two today and then two next week. How about that? Okay, so let's start with scene one. What's the setting of the first scene? Well, the setting, I want you to imagine, the setting is a place called Moab. Ah, in fact, uh, the text begins in uh, uh, Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 to 22. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. And so in this setting, chapter 1, verse 1 to 18, we have the first point there, a setting of many trials. This is verse 1 to 5 of the first chapter. The opening words of the text is, are in the days when the judges rule. So in other words, you understand where we are at in the biblical history. It is in the time of the judges. In fact, many scholars agree that it was a time during the rulership of Gideon. And the book of Judges ends with the statement, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was a time of moral relativism, a time of decay, a time of anarchy. There was no central political authority or spiritual focus that existed in Israel. As a result, the book of Judges records a downhill spiral in Israel's moral history. Truly, the story of a silver star in the inking sky, a glorious rose blooming amid desert aridness, a pure gem flushing amid foul debris, a breath of fragrance amid surrounding sterility. 
This is just like the way you... Have you ever gone to a, a, a diamond shop? Okay, you say, no, of course, come on, man. You kidding me? Okay, uh, for the ladies, um, have you ever bought a necklace in like a necklace shop? No, not, not the ones in the streets. Huh? The bosses are not doing their job here. So. It's letting us down. Okay, so when you go to this diamond shop, in most cases there's this diamond necklace that is placed on a, I don't know what they call them, but it's kind of like a neck or something that's black in color, right? And so for you to see the beauty and, and the glimmer of this necklace, it has to be put upon a dark background. So that's sparkling. I like that one. Can you give me that one? And this, this is the kind of picture that we see, the book of Ruth being in the middle of the darkness and moral uh, relativism and recklessness and sinfulness of the times of judges. That's the kind of star that we see. It's kind of like you're looking into the darkness and from a distance you can see a glimmer of light. For the reader, the name... Um, I want you to focus. I want you to see a few things in chapter 1, verse 1 to 5. It's one of the things that I wanted to point out is this whole idea uh, of the town of Bethlehem. What does that mean? It says here that um, uh, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. A man of Bethlehem in Judah went to John in the country of Moab. There was famine, a man of Bethlehem. Now, do you know what Bethlehem means in the Hebrew? It means house of bread. Already, we are, we are already having a contrast there. How does a man coming from the house of bread go to? How does the house of bread lack food? That's the kind of situation that we have in the setting. So ironically, the man was from the town of Bethlehem. The name means house of bread. He left the house of bread in search of bread. Now for the reader, the name is also a reminder that this town was the home of the later great king of Israel, David. It was same, same place, the birthplace of Jesus. The text then says, a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. What's a sojourner? A sojourner was one who worked in a foreign country but had a few of the rights and privileges of the citizenry. So when you are a sojourner, it's kind of like when you're a Ugandan and you live in Kenya, especially in your first one year. You don't have citizenship, you don't have ID, all those kinds of things, and, and you, have, you, have to, you can't get a job. You're, you're basically a refugee of some, some kind. What about the Moabites? You know anything about these guys? They were pagan people. They worshipped gods, gods like Chemosh, gods like Baal, Peor, and many others. In fact, during the period of the judges, they were the arch enemy of Israel. You can read this in Judges chapter 3, verse 12 to 30. So this Israelite man left his ancestral land allotted to him by the Lord, and he went to Moab to work under pagan authority. Why did he go? Now, some people say, come on, it's understandable. There was no food in Israel. There was no food in Bethlehem. There was a famine. What else could he have done? But when we read later on, we find that guys like Boaz stayed. So in many ways, uh, we, we could actually begin to imagine that the reason why there's a famine is actually because... These people had sinned against God. They lived the way they wanted. They relished their own sin. And Elimelech left all that and went into the pagan country. The names of the family members are very important here. The word Elimelech means what? My God is king. The setting is a time when there's no king in Israel. Elimelech's name means, my God is king. His name is very ironic, right? 
there was knocking in Israel. This man and his actions were a testimony to the relativism of the time. His wife's name was Naomi. Guess what Naomi means? Sweet or pleasant. Later in the story, after much suffering, the woman told the women of Bethlehem, don't call me sweet, call me bitter. In other words, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. In verse 3 to 5, we see something that's uh, a bigger picture of the darkness. Verse 3 to 5 says, But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These two Moabite wives, and the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth, they lived there about ten years, and both Marlon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without two sons and a husband. I don't like movies that start like that. Have you watched movies? They just start like people die. <laughs> oh my goodness, I don't want to watch all this. And it starts kind of, the setting is at night. It comes in the night, dead. It's like, is there ever, can, can we have a scene where it's like during the day and so this is the kind of scenery you're having as you walk into this uh, 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 book of Ruth. The family is facing the darkest of times. They lived under famine, had left their homeland, wandering as sojourners in a pagan land for about 10 years. They were obviously affected by their circumstances, and it, as it is evident that the two sons married Moabite women in disobedience to God's word. As if these trials were not enough, tragedy strikes. Elimelech and his two sons die. Elimelech uh, dies first, and then uh, Naomi mourns the death of his husband. And then the kids grow up, and finally there's another wedding for them to, for Naomi to celebrate, knowing that at least she has two sons, and the heritage of Elimelech will proceed. And then after they have married these beautiful ladies, Ruth and Orpah, Marlon and Killian die. And so it ends such a bleak statement there, and both Marlon and Killian died so that the woman was left without two sons and her husband. This was really a tough one. This left Naomi in grave situation. As an Israelite widow with no sons, she was unprotected and faced destitution, poverty, and perhaps even enslavement, loss, grief, loneliness. Oh, these things can change a person. No one knew this better than Naomi. A very charming lady just left her home uh, young and bubbly with full of life and dreams about uh, provisions of food and coming back to Bethlehem and spending the rest of her life taking care of two sons. This is amazing. And then all these things crumble in just but 10 years. What will become of Naomi? How will her life become? Here we see ourselves in our times of sorrows. We are in bleak and despair, wondering what shall become of us. And Naomi was here. The sting of death has come upon her. She could smell it, for all her people had died. Yes, there was no Jew within her. There was no one who she could call her family. She was a stranger, alone in a strange land. Elimelech's lineage was about to be extinct from the face of the earth. You see, the one whose name meant my God is king had died and now his children were dead. With no one to marry Naomi at her age, there was only a blank and bleak future. She was, like other songwriters say, a poor wayfaring stranger traveling through this world of war. I want you to come with, to know that in moments of weakness, brothers and sisters, in moments of defeat and sorrow and calamity, we are not alone. How do I prove that? 
consider the next uh, three chapters, three verses. And my title for those next three verses is actually the Lord's compassion. In verse 6, then she rose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had had in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Naomi now plans to return to her family's inheritance in Judah for two reasons. First, her life in Moab is done. She can't continue living here. She's a widow. Second, she heard that God had visited his people and ended the famine. Yahweh had brought the famine and now he graciously removed it. You see, God is always in charge of everything. When we go through those very dark and bleak times, we try to imagine that God is unaware or he is hmm, maybe sleeping or not as powerful. Uh, the angels didn't report in time. Lord, why, 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 why all this? But notice what the Bible says, for she heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. The Bethlehem, which was the house of bread, had actually owned back its name. Bethlehem was buzzing with bread again. Moab had this testimony. The Lord had visited his people. Notice, it was not their hard work. It was not Weather forecasting, you know, the, the way we do here in Kenya with El Nino. It was not all that. It was the Lord. He was not just dealing with the peoples of the earth. It was not just, he was not just dealing with Watuamungu. No, he was dealing with his own people. That's why the text says, the Lord had visited his people. His people. We learn a great lesson here about God, that God controls all things. It is his will that we have sunshine and rain, moon and stars, bountifulness and luck. It is the Lord who leads us in the way of many sorrows, and the one who with compassion guides us out of our miseries. If you ever find yourself in a situation as a Christian where you are facing a trial, know that the Lord is in charge. Know that the Lord is not absent from the moment of your sorrow. A leading word appears throughout verse 6 to 22. The word to return. It actually appears 12 times. This verb has the idea of repentance. It's not just changing in location, but repentance. The Lord had not just brought bread. God had brought repentance. The Lord was not just interested in soothing Naomi's sorrow. The Lord was interested in changing Naomi's heart. In verse 7 to 9, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. See, as Naomi begins her journey back to Bethlehem, her two widowed daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth, accompany her, as anyone would. But they were not accompanying her with the idea of going with her all the way. At least that's not what Naomi had in mind. You see, they would have been better off back in Moab. Why? Because there they could be married off again. But if they went to Bethlehem, it would only take 
one who is what they call a kinsman redeemer. It would have to take someone in the lineage of Elimelech. Are you guys following? That's why for Naomi, she had all these things calculated. The two women were not required to go with Naomi, but they had every right to return to their families. In fact, Naomi urged them to return to their Moabite families. She even pronounced a blessing. May the Lord deal kindly with you. But that's not what they do. They don't just go and say, bye, it's been nice having you around here. Uh, maybe we'll see each other again. No, these guys had lived together for such a long time. They had sorrowed together. That's the only family she knew. And that's the only family they knew. And so in verse 10 to 14, we see what we call the great cling. Although Opa and Ruth asserted that they would yet go with their mother-in-law, Naomi insists that they don't. Read in verse 10 to 14, it says here, and they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Where will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they are grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lift up their voices and wept again, and Opa kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So, Naomi would have nothing to offer them. You understand now why, right? Because if there was anything for her to offer, then she would have to get married, get sons, those sons grow up, and then they would get married off. In other words, they were signing off saying, we are going to be childless and without family if we follow this lady. That's the fix they were in. And as always... Orpah was like, that actually makes sense. I think I'm just going to go back. But Ruth clung to her. So verse 13 to 14, we see something that, Ruth, that Naomi says here that I think is very important. She says, the hand of the Lord has gone against me. So listen, according to Naomi and her understanding of all these calamities, there was one thing that was ringing in her mind. All these things are the Lord's doing. Uh, brothers and sisters, we are so much used to a certain kind of gospel that tells you, you've got to fight the devil. Because he ain't want nothing good for you. And so with this whole idea of spiritual warfare, we magnify the devil. And in that, we fail to understand that sometimes the trials and life struggles we go through are actually allowed by God to shape us into Christ-like creatures. Are you guys following we need to have this understanding of the sovereignty of God. That God is in charge. And what Naomi is telling these two ladies is, if you guys stick with me, you're going to have the consequences of God's hand that is laid upon me. Naomi is saying, the hand of the Lord is upon me. In other words, the punishment of the Lord is upon me. In other words, the discipline of the Lord is upon me. So if you guys come with me, you're going to have to suffer a cross because of what I have done and because of my, my family and my predicaments. 
But the one thing that she knows completely is that the Lord is in charge of everything that's happening in her life at that point. And so in verse 15 to 18, we see Ruth's confession. Ruth's confession. Verse 15 to 18. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. There in the middle of those scales, it dawns on Ruth that this is a decisive moment. Naomi has laid before me the consequences of following her. She has explained to me what will befall me should I go with her. But there is something about the God of Naomi, the one with which she acknowledges that everything that has happened in her life is actually in the purview of God. There's something about this Yahweh of Israel. And this is my moment to declare my allegiance to God. You see, Orpah turns to her gods. Ruth, on the contrary, turns away from her gods to the one true God, Yahweh of Israel. The conversion of a Gentile, a pagan Moabite, to the true faith should shock us this evening. This conversion, Father, points to a greater reality. In the kingdom of God, there is no Jew, there is no Gentile. There is no male, no female. No slave, no free. The kingdom is open to all. Fast forward in the book of Matthew chapter 1, we see Ruth and Rahab in the genealogy. As if God is saying, all those people are mine. One commentator says, this was a very brave, outspoken confession of faith. Please to notice that it was made by a woman, a young woman, a poor woman, a widow woman, and a foreigner. Now, remembering all, remembering all that, I should think there is no condition of gentleness or of obscurity or of poverty or of sorrow which should prevent anybody from making an open confession of allegiance to God when faith in the Lord Jesus Christ has been exercised. Are you here and you have not made that commitment? You say, I think I like my gods better. What is there for any of us to be ashamed? Are you ashamed of acknowledging Jesus? There's something to learn from Ruth here. There's a famous hymn that goes something like this. Ashamed of Jesus, that dear friend, on whom my hopes of heaven depend. No, when I blush, be this my shame, that I no more revere his name. Friends, we ought to be ashamed of being ashamed of Jesus. We ought to be afraid of being afraid to know him. We ought to tremble at trembling to confess him. And to resolve that we will take all suitable opportunities that we can find of saying fast to relatives and then to all others with whom we come into contact. I serve the Lord. I and the Lord are one. The Lord is my shepherd. We need men and women from here who would boldly proclaim to this society of moral relativism, a crooked, depraved generation, that we don't serve those gods, we serve Yahweh, the true king of Israel. 
And lo and behold, scene one, curtains roll. Fast forward, come on. Scene two. So Moab and then what? Bethlehem. Probably spend very short time here, but hopefully you'll enjoy the story still. So Bethlehem, this setting, this second scene is actually from verse 19 of chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 23. Now here we have Naomi and Ruth. In fact, let me just read it. It says, but Boaz answered her. Wait, uh, sorry. Uh, my text. Chapter 2, verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? So they have left Moab. And now they are in this amazing land of bread. There's something here that I want you to note. You might almost say, the story is kind of boring at this point. So people died, then they went back home. They were just normal people. There's something for us to learn here. That much of life is routine. We go to class, we go home, we go to sleep, repeat. Class, home, sleep, repeat. That's kind of thing, the, the kind of way we look at life. There's no much extraordinary things happening in our lives. And we might str struggle to find meaning in the humdrum of life. In this passage from the book of Ruth, we see how God providentially guides and provides in what may outwardly appear inconsequential moments. And what we learn is that God does some of his most extraordinary work through the most ordinary means. They have just gone back home. So, so it's homecoming. And very interesting here, by the way, when guys see them coming, it's like, it's like uh, the way this hall is made. It's like someone coming through that, that, you know, that door way at the back. All these guys from this side, all these guys down here can see them. Is that Naomi from 10 years ago? Huh. She's skinny. What happened to her? Oh, she, she shaved her hair. Oh, where's the husband? Oh, by the way, did you see she was walking around with some lady who's actually not an Israelite, by the way. And she looks broke. I'm a java. In our local language here in Kenya, of course. <laughs> That's the commotion that we see here in verse 19, in 18 and 19. Is this Naomi? If it was today in the social media channels and everywhere, we see, ah, blah, 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 has landed in the airport. Very famous person. Probably she was famous because of her character. Maybe she was famous because of her decision with the husband to go away. But for some reason, the village understood. They saw him. They saw her. But her reaction is not what they expect. She says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, which means bitter. Naomi has actually used this word bitter before in verse 13, when she told Opa and Ruth, it is exceedingly bitter to me that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So when she's reflecting upon her life at this point, she actually accepts the fact that it's not a good life. It's a life full of pain, a life full of loss, a life in the hands of Almighty Father, but not showing off how mighty he is. There are four things in verse 20-21 that Ruth declares, uh, Naomi declares, she declares that the Lord has done four things. One, has dealt bitterly with her. Two, has brought her back empty. 
Three has testified against her. And four has brought trouble upon her. These were bitter providences. Naomi, however, was not blaming God for her situation. She was simply recognizing God's hand in all the eventualities of life and responding with endurance and patience to them all. Let me ask you, dear listener, when you're facing the most difficult circumstances in life, do you quickly retreat to blaming God and the devil, or do you realize with a great sense of awe that God is in church and that what is happening does not find him by surprise? A former poet by the name William Cooper, 1731, together with John Newton, produced a famed hymnal. And the title was, God Moves in a Mysterious Way. Uh, the phrase quickly entered popular parlance, but Copper reverently and thoughtfully, skillfully understood what this meant. In fact, there is this famous statement that was coined by this guy by the name Copper. It says that behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. You see, God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessing on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err. The scan his work in vain. God in his own is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. In other words, there's always a reason for suffering. The pain you face, there's a meaning to it. Just because you don't know what it is does not mean there is no meaning to it. This section ends with a statement that Naomi and Ruth had become to Bethlehem, had come at the beginning of the barley harvest. From Scene one, where we saw a lot of darkness, we pan off to scene two, and there is much providences and graces from God. Praise God. And we see in the fields the opening verse of this section in chapter two, where Boaz is now introduced, right? And Boaz is the game changer. I'm so glad there's no Boaz here. Because I don't think you would fit the bill for this guy over here. Verse 1 to 7 says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. Why does it say a worthy man? I've always wondered, why a worthy man? Because Boaz to us here is actually a picture of Christ. One who was worthy to take upon the punishment of them all, but also one who was worthy to bless all of us with eternal life. They say he was full of strength. His character was unspeakable. And then just after verse 1, the author goes back to the story of Ruth and talks about Ruth. He says, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of the grain after him in whose sight I shall him find favor. There's a way things are working here that's very strange to understand. They have just arrived. 
they have moved into a house maybe and they're just starting out their life and on the other side of town there's a guy called Boaz he has a huge land he's very rich he has all these things going for him it's harvest time of course people are he has servants and blah 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 and then on this other side Ruth is waking up she's realizing she made promises to Naomi and she has to keep them Naomi is probably very old Ruth realizes, I need to get up and go to work. And since we are poor, we cannot afford anything. We are women. I am young. But God has a provision given in the law that if during harvest time, the poor should be allowed to glean on the proceeds of the land so that they can also be taken care of. That's how the story is going. But there are three, three times Naomi says, something about favor in verse 1 to 3 he says let me go and find favor in verse 10 he says why have i found favor and verse 13 he says she says may i continue to find favor when she sets out to go and find favor she actually finds she gets into this land of boas it's not like she knew or anything and she starts gleaning, and Boaz notices her. She calls one of the servants. She's like, hey, what's that beautiful girl doing over there? Oh, she doesn't look like she comes from here. I have never seen her. And then the guy, it's like he already had a CV. You know, I think Naomi was actually very famous. Her story was very famous. Already had a CV. She's like, you know that lady, actually, she's very special. She left the entire of her home. With everything, she left her gods and made a covenant to serve Naomi. It's like, oh, that's what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, let's, let's have a talk with, with her. And, 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 and she comes over and, and they have a chat. And Boaz, like the gentleman he is, he's like, nobody's going to touch you or do anything to you. Make sure this lady is taken care of. Make sure she drinks water. Make sure she doesn't do a lot of work. And make sure she goes home with a bunch of goodies. And that's why Ruth, in the midst of all this, says, Why have I found favor? What have I done to deserve all this? It's too much. It kills me. This is too much blessing. Ruth uses a play on words here. You've taken notice of me, verse 10. A foreigner. She was further startled that he would speak to her so kindly and comfort her, although she was merely a servant. Let me pause here and ask you, have you found favor before God? Do you know something of what it feels like to say, whom am I that you are mindful of me? Have you experienced the friendship of Jesus, his favor? Where he doesn't just call you servant, he calls you friend. If you haven't experienced this, I want to call you to this. That this Jesus says in John 6, 37, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me. And him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Maybe it's time for you to get off your high horse and run into the fields and look for this Jesus who calls you and will receive you with his arms and will produce a blessing upon you like he produced to the disciples in Matthew chapter 28. And of course, Ruth continues to glean until evening, verse 17, and she gets back home and she has good news. He's like, Mama, guess what? I just met a hunk of a guy and he was sweet to the tooth. He handled me with care. He took very good care of me. In fact, look, I ate so much, I have some more for you. What are we going to do with all these things? And Naomi's like, wait, wait, what was the name of the guy you said? He said it's Boaz. Wait, what, Boaz? Are you serious? The very boars that I know. And probably he mentioned the other names. You see, 
Boas wanyama otino? He said, yeah, I think, I think that's, what she's, that's what he said. And he has all this land and, and everything. Huh. Naomi's like, wow. She's just spinning it in her head. Just, wow. Are you serious? And just before you know it, the curtains end of scene two. So we're going to find out what this Redeemer guy is next week. We're going to find out why this was an amazing good news for this lady Naomi. Stay tuned. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, very, very few times do we actually sit under your word to just enjoy the story of the unfolding of the drama of how you work in people's lives. Today, as we span through the first half of this book, we have learned about providence. We have learned that nothing, absolutely nothing bypasses you. You have everything intertwined, put together, so that you are never found with surprise. That as we go on with life, as we make our mistakes, as we sin, as we stumble and fall, as we rise in disobedience and all that, that you work out all things, as the Bible says in Romans, according to your purpose. So that all these things are working together for good. So that Elimelech and Naomi going to Moab because of hunger. And then Elimelech dying. And then Marlon and Kilion marrying Op and Ruth. And then they die. And then Naomi is old and frail and sick and tired. And darkness is over her roof. And she decides to go back home. And then in the middle of that, Orpah says, you know what, I'm not going to go with you. And then Ruth says, I'm going to go with you. Your God will be my God. Who knew that that very Ruth would wake up that morning, although discouraged, and go as a poor servant slave to the fields and meet Boaz? the kinsman redeemer. The same way our life happens. One thing to another, one thing to another, and we feel like God has left us when he's working out everything. Lord, would you open our eyes to the reality of the fact that you are in charge, that you are a sovereign God, that behind a frowning providence, Lord, you work all things beautiful. Amen.